It's hard to find sane political conversation these days. So Truth Jihad Radio is the place to go. If you like this kind of radio show, please do subscribe at truthjihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack link. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com, broadcasting on Revolution.Radio, the finest of free speech networks. You can go to Revolution.Radio and find the right button to support our work. Likewise, you can also subscribe and or donate at TruthJihad.com. So, getting into the second hour here, we have a couple of terrific uh, guests who have published pointed, cutting op-eds about the most important issue facing us right now, which is the likelihood, or at least uh, unfortunately too high probability, of impending nuclear holocaust thanks to the insane Russophobia and the idiotic moves uh, that NATO and the U.S. are making in Ukraine. In the second half hour, uh, we're going to hear about why Colonel Douglas McGregor should be the next president from Eric Zeus. He's he's uh, the author of a uh, little brief op-ed uh, calling for the nomination of Colonel McGregor. And now we've got Michael Brenner. Now, Michael Brenner's emails are actually better than most people's articles. So I took the liberty of posting his latest email at Veterans Today and appending the title, Why the Unhinged Russophobia and Anti-Putin Hysteria? I think that's a pretty good question, and Michael Brenner uh, does a pretty good job of answering it, or at least exploring it. So, hey, Michael, welcome. How are you? Hello, Michael Brenner. Well, maybe we don't have him on the line yet, so uh, I'll have to figure out why that is, and then we'll uh, we'll try to get him. I do believe that... I'm trying to add him now, but it's his number unavailable, unable to add participant. Oh, you know, we probably have a problem with his phone number because he's got one of those block. Uh, we're, we've unblocked, so we're trying it that way. Okay, we're trying an unblocked way to get through to him. I've noticed that this has become a problem when you call somebody on Skype if they have one of those little uh, default blockers. Yeah, this this one is different because normally it says, like, they'll answer, it'll say, this number doesn't take, you know, accept calls from a blocked number. This one is a message I've never seen before. It's a Skype message. It pops up and says, Unable to add participant, that unable to add participant number unavailable, which I've never seen. Before. Number unavailable. Okay. It seems great, but it, Skype doesn't add it. Well, that's interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, maybe. You want to verify? Make sure you sent me the right yeah, one. Yeah, here I, I did cut and paste uh, what he sent me. So yeah. here I'll, I'll try and uh, send that back to you. Here we go. Here's the number that I got from him. And I think that's the same number we used before. Um, so maybe I need to ask him if that's the right number, which I suppose I can do by replying to his email, which I have to do here while I'm supposed to be talking on the radio. Okay, uh, I'll tell him, hey, Michael, we're trying to reach you. But the number doesn't work. And it does say, you know, Skype sees it as a regular number, and, and but... And it tries to call, which I'm doing now. Okay. How odd. Well, 
I just emailed him and told him that this number doesn't work and urged him to get on Skype. So we'll, we'll see whether, uh, that brings any results. In any case, Michael Brenner is an international relations professor, uh, retired or emeritus from the University of Pittsburgh. And like many retired professors, I guess he feels more secure in his livelihood than the working professors do because it's, it, there are more retired professors than currently working professors who are telling hard truths about the idiocy of so many aspects of our foreign policy. And so he's one of those guys who's really calling it the way he sees it. Maybe he did that while he was working, too. I don't know. But this new article, Why the Unhinged Russophobia and Anti-Putin Hysteria, uh, is, uh, well, that's the question a lot of us have been asking recently. It's just really bizarre to see that. I mean, it didn't seem very long ago that Putin was actually pretty popular in the U.S. and Russia wasn't seen as a problem. And then all the Democrats and the left got agitated about Putin because he was associated in their minds with Trump. And Trump was a traitor for supposedly being a puppet of Putin. And I guess that was part of it. And the people on the right side of the political spectrum, of course, are more, you know, they're more easily manipulated to hate foreign enemies. And so maybe they have, a lot of them anyway, have been corralled and herded into that particular fold. Uh, and so we have a kind of a minority of people that see through this demonization of Putin and Russia and question it. But the best experts in the field see through it. And a lot of them, I think, are afraid to speak out, but uh, quite a few of them aren't. And, and Michael Brenner is, is one of them who's willing to speak out. So let me see if he's answering my email yet. Um, not yet. That's... Uh, uh, Okay, I'm going to see if I have any alternate phone numbers for him. Don't seem to. That's odd. I wonder if he spaced it out. And that would be unfortunate because it's uh, it's really good stuff. Okay, what do I have for him? Here's another number I have. This looks, is this different? Um, no, that's the same number. So it is his number. It's unavailable. And maybe his essay has uh, pissed somebody off and <laughs> we're not allowed to talk to him anymore. Uh, well, Mr. Mr. Rowe, uh, wait, wait, is that possible? Do they have technology? To- well, they, they unlock Skype. You can call Ukraine for free, but you can't call, you know, this number, I guess. <laughs> well, do you have his Skype handle? I mean, you could try sending him a message on Skype, although probably uh, won't work. Do you have a Skype handle for him? Yeah, I, I can find it. Let me see here. Where's... Where's Michael Brenner's Skype handle? Uh, Let me see. We, uh, have we had I him think, before? We, I think we have. Uh, although maybe you only had him on uh, through the phone number. Let's see. Let's see, because I do keep all the yeah. contacts we've ever had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gives me a lot of contact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we have. We've had a fair number of people on here. Well, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not finding a, the correct. Uh, Spike, Skype, uh, a Skype no, and I just have that yeah. one number you've got for. Yeah, me. so I guess it's uh, for whatever reason uh, he's he's offline. Well, I, I hope that you know it isn't the bad guys doing anything to try to remove him <laughs> from the radio airwaves uh, due to this great article he wrote. I wouldn't think so. I mean, they haven't started clamping down yet. But but Mr. Rowe, I mean, do you, would you put it past the oligarchs that run America? to, you know, really clamp down with an iron fist and, and put dissidents out of business? 
Uh, well, during this day and age now, with all of the recent, you know, Russophobia um, that's been going on, no, I wouldn't put it past them. And in fact, I just saw a thing about uh, a little blurb that the, the Kremlin, I guess, unblocked a torrent site so that Russians could stream movies because obviously everybody's boycotting. And um, the torrent site itself didn't shut down. They only blocked Russians. <laughs> everybody's jumping on the bandwagon to like virtue signal. Like I'm doing my part to make sure that Russian citizens can't participate in the world. And it's just, to me, it's ridiculous. It is. Yeah. Well, I guess we could always jump on board the bandwagon and and say, okay, we hereby prohibit Russians from listening to this radio show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't do it because I, I, I'm a Russian. Ah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, well, that's that. I'm a Roshan. I actually have some some relatives out there uh, in that that whole area, you know, um, from east in, in Eastern Europe and into Russia and even down into the Chechnya area. And and I've been to Ukraine and I've been to Russia and I've been to Chechnya. I've been through there and I know these kinds of people. And 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 it's actually, you know, they are some of the most wonderful, loving, honorable people. But just don't piss them off. Um, don't, <laughs> don't betray them. And, and literally, I think that they all want the same thing. They just want to be left alone in their thing to, to live life the way they want to live it. And no, nobody likes outside interference, whether you're from Chechnya or California, you know, and, and, and also it's human nature, of course, to bond with like folks like you know if if people have the same religion or if uh, the family has you know it's just like teams like sports teams or anything else so you know the the complications of of what's going on over there um it goes way back even to world war ii when you had bolsheviks from the soviet side and you had nazis on the other side <clears throat> but now the dynamics have changed but you have generational um you know um affiliations on both sides with affinities from the West towards Germany and the EU and affinities to the East with Russia. And, and these, these political border lines that have been drawn like by the Soviet Union and, 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 you know, these times back, back at that time, World War II, how come these certain lines for Ukraine are sac- uh, sacrosanct and have to be honored, but other lines like for Czechoslovakia or, uh, Kosovo or, um, you know, um, the uh, Yugoslavia, they, that, that was okay to break those up, which I agree that they probably should be broken up because they are different ethnic groups. But how come then we can't do the same thing uh, without a, a war for Lugansk and Don, uh, in the Donbass mm-hmm. and, and, and Donetsk? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. And, and we also, I think we need to remember that people in that part of the world do have some memories or at least their you know ancestral memories and their you know stuff they heard from their parents and grandparents about just how horrible it was when there was a huge war fought on their territory and ukraine and russia suffered just horribly in you know world war ii in particular but even before that you know there was uh, the uh, napoleonic invasion and things like that going back to the mongol hordes and so on and so forth you know so people have had these horrific wars on their territory and, and even southerners here in the united states sometimes have these kinds of uh, memories that that makes them a little skittish. I mean, you can see absolutely, you know, and most Americans don't get this about the Russians. Now, you know, here I'm, I'm going to quickly call that phone number from my phone and see what happens. Okay, here we go. 
wonder if people are going to figure out what the number is. <laughs> You're by listening to, uh, I hope nobody is trying to hack uh, Michael Brenner's number by listening hackers to the toast. Yeah, uh, we probably have a few hackers in our audience. Watch it work for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we got we got a dial tone. Got a so ring. that's interesting. It's better than you got. Uh-oh. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or what? is no longer in service. What? You have reached this recording in yeah. error. No. Please I don't feel so bad. Okay. Hmm. That's, that's very odd because that is the, I think that's the, the number that, uh, I, I have for him. Oh. And you didn't transpose any numbers there or anything? No, I don't think so. And, and you know, it's really weird. Is uh his his number just disappeared from my address book. Okay, there there we go. Okay, let me let me try this one more time because that uh this is what I have. Oh, okay, no, that's just that's the same number. Okay. This is a five one two, that's not the Bay Area, is it? Like uh, the East Bay? It's back east or Texas or Pennsylvania is where it should be. Well, okay, that's uh, that's a bad phone number. Yeah, I hope they didn't just disconnect it because they didn't like his essay. I mean, you never know these days. Five one two is Texas. Texas, really? Yeah. How odd, huh? Well, Uh, you're um, saying he's in Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uh, See, maybe there's a Pennsylvania area code that we. uh, You know, I'm going to try and find. uh, There's a two one five. Well, um, area code. Try that number two one five instead of five one two. Two one five. Okay, that, that would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a pizza plate. Yeah, I guess you're good with that kind of stuff. If, you know that that and finding your way around before the pizza gets cold. The wireless customer you are calling is not available. Okay, well that didn't work either. Um, you know, it's, it's weird though, because I, I searched for that phone number in my uh, email and it's not popping up. And he sent me that his number before in the past. And so if he sent me that he, you know, his number, it, it can't have been the same number I just searched for. Um, so I'm, I'm going to search for like a little piece of his number, like the last four digits, see if that works. Uh, <laughs> well, I would think that he would have answered the email if there was anything that worked. Now it's, um, nope, that's, that's not working. Very strange. Um, I've got a different Michael Brenner. He's in Pittsburgh. Is it a doctor? Well, he used to work at the University of Pittsburgh. He's somewhere on the East Coast. Okay. Cause I do have a number for Michael Brenner. It's a 512 number. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's, is this, let me see. I just, I came it's up with another number. one here. It ends with a zero. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's not the one. In the one in the past, we have used this same number. That's now. Oh, wait a second. Okay, there's a a different. He screwed up a digit. Okay, let's let's try what I think has got to be the correct number here. Um, this is. <laughs> he sent me. Uh, there's the one. See there. There's a a five there instead of a six. Should give you the correct number. Do you see okay. that? Hey, yeah, got it. Let me copy okay, it. Okay, let's try that one. <laughs> Oh man! Not the other one I had, but we'll try this one. Let's try this one. This is one that worked in the past. <laughs> okay. Oh, Here we go. Perils of live radio. This was a pre-recorded. None of this would matter. Dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Not very many dollars on Truth Jihad Radio. Um, but, hello. Hello, Michael Brenner. 
Kevin, I didn't. My phone didn't ring. Well, the reason I don't it didn't know what ring, happened. I know what happened is is you sent me uh, the wrong phone number. The number you just sent me uh, had like the last four digits began with nine six, but in reality, your phone number, the last four digits begin with nine five. <laughs> we saw finally solved the mystery. My trusty studio assistant, Mr. Rowe, uh, and I put our heads oh, together. Oh, God Almighty! I, I don't know. Age is catching up to me. I'm very <laughs> sorry, Kevin. Well, you're still writing great articles. I'm really glad to hear that the NSA didn't knock you offline for writing that fantastic article about the anti-Putin hysteria. Well, I haven't gotten around to it, but. Uh, See, the problem is that I'm not important enough for them even to notice. Yeah, yeah, they haven't uh, droned me yet either. So I'm looking, you know, that would be a red light a day is what I'm put on one of their lists. <laughs> you know, if not the no-fly list, maybe the no-greyhound list. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wouldn't mind the no greyhound list. I'm I'm kind of old for long trips on greyhound. I I used to ride the dog occasionally, but so so this new article I I loved it. It was actually just an email, but I I made it an article by posting it at Veterans Today and adding the headline. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. yeah no, that's good stuff. Well, because... well, I decided no more miss the nice guy. <laughs> Well, what, so that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why, why has the West gone insane about Putin and Russia? Well, I must say, I, you know, offered those hypotheses in a serious effort to make sense of it um, because I, I'm puzzled by it. I mean, not the kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill uh, chauvinism overlaid with some xenophobia. But the fact that it, it knows no no limits and leads to actions and behavior, which indeed are, uh, you know, un, uh, uh, unprecedented. I mean, we are, you know, bordering on, on the land of psychopathology, Collective psychopathology. Now let's understand that there really seem to be two interlaced phenomena. One are the people who calculatingly have set out to maximize anti-Russian uh, sentiment in order to drastic actions taken to isolate and reduce and weaken Russia which I believe has been American policy for some time and was given point by the Biden administration. Of course, don't forget this began really in um, right after they took office in which they accelerated the shipment of arms to the Ukrainians and urged the Ukrainian government to move forces, concentrate forces in the Donbass on the line of, uh, of contact, as they, as they call it. So we set out to provoke the Russians, and we wanted this to happen, something to happen, 
so that it would justify the imposition of draconian sanctions. I think that's that's become quite apparent. I don't know whether they expected, uh, probably preferred not this degree of reaction, uh, since they really don't care about Ukraine one way or another, but just enough to justify severe sanctions, uh, particularly in the energy sector, and to get all the European allies on board. So that, 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 that's one thread in this, one major thread. The, the other thread, though, is, I mean, that's not mystifying. The other mystifying, you know, puzzling element is is the public reaction. Because don't forget, until this past fall, very little attention was being paid to Ukraine by the public. Uh, you know, all the survey data, you know, shows that. And then the swiftness and the brutality of the response is quite extraordinary. You know, and admittedly, some of it was spurred, I'm sure, by the administration making calls to to the media and egging them on. But the media, since they're really in the entertainment business, love a story like this and run with it. They always run with it in terms of devoting time. But now, you know, the tale, it's a fictional tale. And the country is living a fiction. I mean, every New York Times, not every, but most New York Times headlines are literally lies. And, you know, I, I know that not only from the logical circumstances, but also from some people who are truly, you know, knowledgeable. And playing into these false flag operations like the hospital and now the theater, I, I mean, that's willing, willful ignorance, and it's playing a role in, in, in a script. And the readiness to do that, and then the gullibility of the country and buying all of all of it, is quite remarkable. It is, and it's kind of uh, a sign that people like me, who have been trying to alert folks about the untrustworthiness of our deep state and and the reality of false flag operations and so on, may not have succeeded to the point that we would wish. You know. We have a, a, a alternative oh, media that that is aware of these things, but it, it does seem that the majority of the public is still willing to believe what they're told. Yes, I mean the degree of gullibility is quite remarkable, particularly set against the backdrop of all of the recognized lies that we've been told over the last 20 years or so. I mean, you know, not not suggesting that this is entirely novel, but, I mean, everybody knows we were lied into the war in Iraq, and there have been strings of lies. I mean, we're just talking about foreign affairs, but there are also counterparts on, domestic, you know, domestic matters. And you get these strings of endless lies that have proven so costly to the country and yet, you know, your government comes up with some new cockamamie fiction, and people 
just swallow it whole. Now, this is where I think you get into the psychopathology because, you know, strand one, which is the government's own plans, is not, might be pathological political terms, but on psychological terms. The media sort of thing is kind of halfway between the two. But the mass gullibility and the initiatives of people really not acting um, the government, with government encouragement, uh, that, that's psychopathology by my definition. I would include in that category people like Peter Gell at the, uh, at the Met. I don't think the government was on him to break a contract with Anna Netrebko. Did it on his own. Uh, and so, you know, it all comes down to his mentality, and I mean, this is absolute madness. And because it's not just in America, the British are just as bad, and many of the continental Europeans have, have, have followed suit. That's right. The first, the first, uh, uh, initiatives to cut ties with artists just because of Russian nationality came from Europe. He came from the Munich Opera, uh, Philharmonic, who, who, who tossed out uh, Gergiev, and then Rotterdam, and then Vienna, and, and whatever. And then there's the, the morons up that are tied in university who canceled a course on Dostoevsky's novel, taught by an Italian. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's madness. Mm -hmm. That's pretty funny. You know, I, I used to study Dostoevsky uh, through the context of, of Bakhtin's work. You know, Bakhtin was the founder of dialogism. He believed in uh, all language is really just echoing with the dialogue of many different voices. We should listen to all the voices and stuff. And then, you know, what we're seeing now is the exact opposite. It's monologism, this insistence of only one voice, the voice of the neocon uh, oligarchs. Yeah, they have their counterparts. I mean, on, in, in, in Europe, I mean, again, this, this is another, it's not entirely unprecedented, but it's another distinctive and peculiar feature. I, I, I mean, this is a trans, transcontinental collective psychopathology. I mean, I, I really don't think we have any historical precedent to it. And, you know, I threw in this this line of, of, of uh, going back to the 1930s and Max Schmeling just to demonstrate uh, how off the wall and loony we've become. I mean, you know, I don't think many people are familiar with it, but Max Schelling was viewed as kind of the, you know, the symbol of fascism, although he himself was apolitical. Although, you know, the regime, I think, played it up, you know, in German as being world heavyweight champion. And, of course, John Lewis, and particularly for liberal Americans, the fact that he was a black counted a lot, too. But my father always remembered that, you know, very, very, you know, vividly. But, but 
Nobody. Well, there there were some people I think who who uh, you know protested Schmeling, but nobody seriously thought about canceling the match because Schmeling was German. They would today. Well, now the other they've canceled the Special Olympics, or they sent the Russian uh, yeah, well, handicapped that athletes is, home. Yeah, that is so despicable. As you know, I emphasize that in the article. Yeah, I mean that that sort of thing is only explicable in my mind in psychopathological terms. Mm-hmm. I mean that is so beyond the pale. Uh, and and for the self-conscious, self-proclaimed humanist to do it to those people, they got to be sick. Yeah, it seems that sick. way. There's, there's, yeah. Well, you know, there's the the madness of crowds, and this seems to be kind of a, an extreme example of that. Yeah, but you know, the, the madness of crowds because we know a lot about, and a lot has been written about it. Uh, but this is not a crowd that's a physical crowd. I mean, they're not all bunched together in a square or in Nuremberg or in a stadium, all shouting slogans and singing songs together. And these are people who, who are physically separated and behaving as if they were a mass mob. It's a social media mob. I mean, how anybody can get so excited by something in social media because it's beyond me. But that's, uh, you know, I wouldn't place much stress on that since I'm so alienated from social media. I don't even use it to say hello to someone. So for me, you know, the notion that you can get excited is that you were in in a Nuremberg fire torch parade by getting on your smartphone and putting <laughs> with social media? I mean, is is like a tale out of the supernatural. But I know that sort of thing goes goes on at least to some extent. Right. So uh, our, our next guest, who we're, we're we don't have on yet, uh, is Eric Zeus. And he just wrote a, a short piece nominating Douglas McGregor for president. And McGregor is apparently a, a very good yeah. public speaker and seems to be approaching this whole thing with some uncommon common sense. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, you know, there are a few of you, but, I mean, the amazing thing is there are so few. Most of them are the usual critics and marginal types. And that as we move more and more to the extremes, uh, nobody speaks up. I mean, nobody in the country speaks up about the gross mistreatment of, of the Paralympians. Nobody, at least not as far as I've seen. I, I, I mean, none of the people that I haven't heard a say or read of a single voice in the world of classical music protesting towards Andre Gergiev and the Tripco. Yeah, that's not a single one. None of their colleagues. 
it could have brought an end to the same non the whole nonsense of six of the met you know performers had simply said no, none of us are participating unless you withdraw this uh, uh, you, you know this boycott of, of, of Atrepco and this jerk. Peter Gelb would have caved in within 24 hours. That's all they had to do. And nobody, I mean, we, we, you know, among the symptoms of our sickness is the fact, well, in this case, it's not just Americans because, you know, the opera and the classical music world is totally cosmopolitan. It's the cowardice of our times, too. Indeed. But. You know, I mean, in a sense, we're not. I mean, how brave do you have to be to speak up on behalf of of, para, of innocent para athletes? And where where were our churchmen? Where's the you know the mainline Protestant churches? Yeah, well, that's what I was They're asking silent. after after nine eleven. I mean, the only, the only thing they talk about is, 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 uh, you know, recruiting transgender priests or not ministers, priests, ministers. Is that the only thing that counts in the world is transgenders. I mean, well, don't get me started on that. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get canceled yeah. for that too. Although we've already given them probably plenty of reasons to cancel us. Uh, so. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. there's a very interesting poem that Yevtushenko wrote, short poem, uh, very straightforward, in effect, making this point. Uh, in effect, he says in a few verses, you know, what a strange place the world has become where a elementary and basic act of, I don't know what he calls it, of decency is declared to be heroic. Yeah, that's a strange kind of, uh, you know, courage and cowardice where these people lack the courage to risk standing up for the para-athletes, but apparently they have enough courage to risk dying in a nuclear war and you know, the incredible suffering that that would entail, because that's where this is all heading. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe they should have some healthy fear of that, but seemingly yeah, nobody yeah, does. But we, we, you, know, you, know, we, you know, we came to terms with the bomb 40 years ago. Nobody worries about the bomb anymore. I did as a teenager. And, you know, I had my own, well, there was good reason to, but I had my own neuroses, et cetera. But nobody thinks about the bomb anymore. And um, I don't think there is any danger, really. There's no other reason than, uh, you know, the people who control it, by which I mean not just the heads of state, but the military or... Yeah, it tends to be sane people. Just sane. That's all I can say. Safe of them. I mean, and, and of course, the sanest ones are on the other side. 
I, I mean, I have more confidence in the sanity and sense of responsibility of, of Putin and Xi than I do of anyone in the West. Yeah, me too. And and that's not much of an advertisement for the wonders of democracy, is it? No, I mean, you know, I've been, you know, I don't think luck, luckily we don't have any real madmen in the head of of of, of governments in the West. We don't even have any Curtis or LeMay around any anymore. Uh, you know, and Trump, Trump is gone. But, you know, they just have a bunch of weak, cowardly people. But, you know, none of them is really ever going to think about nuclear or, you know, initiating anything having to do with, with nuclear weapons. Do you know the story about Brezhnev and nuclear weapons? Uh, I don't recall that. Well, Brezhnev, by the way, was Ukrainian. You know that? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brezhnev, apparently, at some point, he wanted or encouraged him, what would actually happen if we were situation where I had to contemplate, you know, launching a nuclear weapon, missile. He says, well, you know, how how does this thing work? He he had the equivalent of our black box again, but physically, mechanically, how does it work? So I took him down to, I don't know, some missile silo or whatever, And, uh, you know, the general showed him around, and this is where the signal would go, who would receive, that you would send, who would receive it, and And, uh, then they showed him some, this was early on, you know, in in the early computer age, so it was actually something physical, you could look at, I don't know whether it was a button, probably wasn't, but anyway, so they said, yeah, this is what the man, you know, the the guy who would re- actually release it on command do. And uh, and he said, and they told him, look, it's a, it's a dud, but go ahead, put your finger on it, or something like that. <laughs> and Brezhnev totally turns white, and he sticks his hand out, and he stops, and he turns to the general, Are you sure this is a dud? <laughs> you sure that thing's not loaded? <laughs> and then, yeah, no, this is apparently this is true. And you know, it was like two or three times he hesitated again, and the sweat starts pouring down his face before before he did the equivalent of putting his his, his finger on on the button. Well, that's what any sane person. Yeah, that's 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 a healthy thing. I mean, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't surprise us. <laughs> well, you know, maybe, maybe John F. Kennedy had a healthy fear too, because you know he was notorious for ditching the uh, the nuclear briefcase uh, and running off with uh, with women and things like that. And I think that was one thing the deep state of, of many things that they didn't like about him. Yeah, well, I don't think you know. 
If I had to guess, I would I would guess that no one who's ever been in possession or had the ability and the authority to initiate the launching of a nuclear weapon ever really contemplated doing it. Even even in in a conjectured mode. I really don't. Uh, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's well. You know, there there, there are. One, there was one fleet commander, American, who, after he retired, admitted that if he ever got a command to launch a nuclear weapon. I guess from a submarine, uh, would not do it. He vowed to himself that he would not do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good sign that they're actually screening for mental health, right? I mean, if they're on, if they're screening these people for mental health, then they should be having people like that in charge. Yeah, well, but there's the home one guys who privately vow never to do it. Well, they don't want them, but, you know, it's basically you have a choice. Either you have a healthy person who doesn't want to do it, or you have some kind of psychopath who will do it. Yeah, or you have healthy people among whom would be a few who would take the vow that this guy did. I think that's that's the way maybe to put it. Mm-hmm. Well, there, of course, was, was that there, those studies – uh, of people's willingness to kill uh, that revolutionized the military training and doctrine. You know, after I think it was McGregor, uh, another McGregor discovered that the, in World War II, the vast majority of inter- infantry troops would deliberately either fire over the heads of the enemy or not even yeah. fire because they didn't want to kill anybody. And so they yeah, discovered they, did, you read, yeah. did you read my piece on uh, post traumatic shock? I think I did, yeah. Yeah, I think you referenced yeah. some of the same stuff, that killology uh, book. Yeah. Well, actually, I think, well, I don't know. I don't know those studies. I never read the studies. I just read, a, you know, summaries and references to them and and, and Apparently, most, well, not most of the total force, but of the kind of people you're talking about, most of them never raised their rifles because they were high. They were staying as low as they could. Mm-hmm. And then a percentage who actually did fire the, their rifles did what you just, just described. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, but that was, that was the American army. I don't think that was to the Germans or the Soviets or or the other. I mean, there's a cultural factor at work and who these people are. And and there's a discipline factor. Yeah. Well, well, they discovered that they could train people. I mean, they could train people. It's not on the DNA. I mean, if you took those, those Germans... And Russians, and you brought them up in the United States, they would have behaved exactly like, you know, how our guys did, in fact. 
I mean, it's a social cultural thing. But as I recall from these studies by that uh, Colonel Dave Grossman, who wrote the book, I actually did read that book, and he founded the so-called oh, science of killology. And, and so he claims in that book that it wasn't just the U.S. soldiers, but in fact that look at even archaeologists, you know, looking at ancient battlefields and such, have for whatever reasons or whatever abilities they've, they've had to study this, they've somehow concluded that uh, a lot of people have been reluctant to kill historically in, in yeah. uh, battles. And so that what that means is that in all wars, a very small percentage of the participants has, have done most of the killing. And those, the ideal participant is the psychopath who can kill a human being as easily as they can yeah. squash a fly. So the well, 2% who are psychopaths do very, very well in military. Well, we, know that we know that, but we really don't know what happened and the mentality of, of ancient peoples from various cultural contexts. I mean, it's, it's all. Yeah. But, but uh, 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 what was I going to say? Some in, in any case, people should, should be reluctant to be pushing nuclear buttons, that's for sure. <laughs> well, everybody would be reluctant on, on that score, unless you really uh, not just train them, bred them. You know, like some of the kooks you have running around Washington today, you wonder where the hell these people, where they found them. And I think there's a ranch somewhere in a remote corner of Montana where they breed them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not just the you know the overtly violent ones. I don't know where the hell you get people like 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 Blinken and. So, so the neocons are being bred on a farm in Montana. That's a new one. Yeah, well. <laughs> I think that's a cover. You know, you, know, you could say that the, the biography they have of him, you know, coming from a wealthy family, going to a private—that's what they call a legend. <laughs> the real right. guy was was bred from the age of two on a remote ranch in Montana. This is like a science fiction version of a Plato's Republic yeah, uh, I mean, Guardian class. Frankly, you know. It's not. It's not the dumbness. It's not the mistakes. It's not the whatever. It's the weirdness of some of these people. I mean, mm-hmm. you just don't understand them. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another theory that they've been replaced by extraterrestrials. So that's that's the next step beyond your Montana ranch theory. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think if the extraterrestrials want this kind of, of type that would send them here to be trained in that remote <laughs> ranch in Montana. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we're jumping around. And, and then when they graduated, take them back to wherever <laughs> they came from. Beam them up, Scotty. We're done with them here. <laughs> yeah, beam up the neocons. That sounds like a good Star Trek episode. <laughs> but some, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of these people's behavior, I mean, is, you know, there's no, well, you know, let's get back to my thesis about nihilism. Because mm-hmm. I mean, what I'm saying is that when there are absolutely no norms anymore of any kind of behavior, then anything is not only possible, but everything 
will happen, will be done, may like that will occur on a purely random basis. So, I mean, some of the wackiness, it, you know, you, you try and find a logic, and there's no point to it because there is no logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's whatever, it's, it's impulse. It's, it's the outcome of some very com- complicated in- internal process that has produced a behavior which would have been screened out if this were anything like still a coherent society. But in a nihilistic society, it rises right to the forefront, you know, the frontal lobe of your brain, and you act on it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and it's it's totally impossible to empathize with it in terms of just understanding because there's, you know, there's, there's no coherence. Anyway, let's not go into the. Well, yeah, no, I think I think there's something to that, and I don't think it's just the it's just the overall nihilistic society, but the Straussian neocon philosophy actually leads to that in a sense because you know that philosophy holds that all meaning and and you know God and meaning and goodness and all of that they're just myths, and that the truth is basically that the only there's only one law: the strong have to take what they want from the weak. And so on and so forth. And Kevin, Kevin, I think those people I can understand. And they behave logically. They know what they want. They have clearly defined goals. Yeah, they make mistakes, but that's another thing, right? Mm. Uh, and what they do is logically connected. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, but I, you know, I really do. I mean, it's the, the it's the New York Times editorial board, which I think is completely off the wall. These people don't know what the hell they're doing anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, maybe the new generation of neocons is worse, but but still, I, I think that there's there is nihilism built into that Straussian philosophy that kind of yeah. you know takes the the, the Superman well, Nietzschean Superman and says you you can do whatever you want, just have fun uh, screwing around with the rubes and maximizing your own power and pleasure, and do it in in whatever way you like, and so whatever gets you off, and that leads to a certain kind of randomness. In, you know, because there's no more coherence or no guidance, no set of values, well, and so. Maybe, but but Kevin, they haven't behaved randomly. I knew some of these people back in the '80s and through the '90s, and they've been very consistent. And there's been a hell of a lot of consultation. Mm-hmm. And somehow they've stayed consistently in positions of power even after they've totally screwed things yeah. up. Yeah, I mean. Victoria Newland is a very together person, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. She's, she's very good at screwing things up in Ukraine. Well, some, but again, I mean, you know, like any fanatic ideologue, yeah, they make mistakes and they hurt, they do things that are counterproductive. But, but there's an inner logic which is very tight and very coherent. So what what is uh, her logic? Do you think that she really believes in she trying to turn Ukraine into a democracy? Wants, they want the United States to run the world. Mm-hmm. And they want to run the world in an authoritarian fashion. That's all. 
I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Go back to, you know, in terms of logic, just go back to Paul Wolfowitz's famous March 1992 memo, which was true at the time, you know, and that has is the foundation for the neocons and the, the blueprint for the neocons. But, you know, the, the terrible thing that in its most critical respects, it has become the common uniform mode of thinking among 90% of the American foreign policy community generally. Yeah. And, and of course, that's the manifesto that said that the U.S. would not allow any other countries to rise to a position right. of ever being able to challenge any aspect of American power. We were going to be the well, unipolar exactly, hegemon forever. Isn't that exactly what we're doing? Well, it, you would think so. However, it seems to me that the neocons, as opposed to the realists, have screwed it up because if they really wanted to maintain U.S. primacy, they should never have diverted $8 trillion into these futile Middle Eastern wars against countries that should be our allies against the real issue, which is China, nor should they be going after Russia at a time when the real issue is China. Look, they're not very subtle like all ideologues. They only have one gear. <laughs> right, but but that, that's that's yeah. that's all you know. All these ideologues—that's their Achilles' heel—is that they only have one gear. They're not they're not very very uh, you know very subtle. If, for example, they had someone, uh, you know. If they had a dominant personality with the attributes of Putin, they would be infinitely more dangerous and more successful. So maybe it's a good thing we don't have any serious leadership. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And we've got a bunch of cowards. Look, if Bush, well, Bush was not a coward. I mean, the younger Bush. He quite happily went off to war and did things, but I think his reason why he didn't attack Iran, despite the pressure coming from Cheney, it was because it was towards the end of his presidency. He didn't want the bother, and probably people like his wife told him, you know, you've had enough wars, George. You're not going to have this. Take this into your retirement with you. But anyway, that's my own. So, so you think Bush's wife saved us from a, a war with Iran? Maybe. Well, other people as well. Wow. Let's, I think we should put up a statue for her. No, I think <laughs> it's not at all implausible. But anyway, then you go on, though. And Obama was a coward. Obama has never seen a conflict he didn't want to run away from, no matter what the hell it was much less starting an open-ended war. Yeah, I mean, helping the Saudis drop bombs on Houthis, sure. You know, checking off names of people to be liquidated one at a time on whatever the hell they called it, sure. But something serious? No, he never had the guts for it. 
He didn't have the guts to fight for anything his whole life. He didn't well, have the guts. I, I, I wouldn't mind if we had a leader who had the guts to recognize that maybe it's time to start uh, running running the world collaboratively with other countries in a more sensible fashion. Yeah, yeah. But that's another country. We're at the end of the hour. Okay, well, hey, it's the end of the hour. Michael Brenner. I'm glad we finally got in touch. We're, we're, we're hearing the buffer music, so we have to sign off. 